Uh, Ravi Zacharias told a true story about a businessman on a plane. Man got on the plane and he noticed that an attractive young woman sat down next to him. So they, they started up a conversation. And after they had some pleasantries for a couple hours, just talking, small talk, flight was about to end, and the businessman made a proposition. He said, uh, I'm, I'm a very wealthy businessman. What do you think if for a million dollars you met me at such and such hotel when we get off and we have a, a rendezvous there? She said yes. He got to the hotel first. She showed up and, and he said, I've got to tell you, I'm not really a millionaire. I can only offer you a hundred dollars. And she said, what kind of a woman do you think I am? And he said, well, we've already established that. Now we're just haggling about the price. One of the things that makes me think about is, what would it take, how much would it take for me to quit following Jesus faithfully? What amount of money, what amount of temptation, what situation would it take for me to stop following him faithfully? Another way to put that is, how much is Jesus worth to me? In our passage today, Jesus is going to issue a call to discipleship, to following him. And he's going to give us four big ideas. As we look at these ideas, I, one, want to view them in the context of grace. We are saved by grace through faith when we trust in Jesus Christ. It is a gift of God. In that light, he calls us to discipleship. But two, in the context of that question, how much is Jesus worth to me? Luke chapter 14, verse 25. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus. And turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Is that the first time any of you have heard that verse? First time? Is it kind of shocking if it is? To hear Jesus say those kind of things? We've talked about this idea within the past couple weeks, so I'm not going to camp on what he means, but just briefly, we know from other passages of Scripture, Jesus wants us to love our wives, love our children, love our neighbors, love even our enemies. So he's not literally saying, hate them with this seething anger. What he's saying is, Your love for me needs to be so hot, so strong, so passionate that in comparison, all those other loves are down here. I think sometimes when we read this passage, we get sent on a guilt trip. And maybe wrongly sometimes, we start to think about, whoa, whoa, I really need to love my family less. Honestly, if you're like me, I look at the way I love my wife and my children and my neighbors, and I'm like, man, I could do a whole lot better. So I don't think that's the point Jesus is getting at here. Go out here and love your family less. I think the idea he's getting at is here is, I want you to get to the place where you love me more than anything else. So rather than looking at the other side, how do we get to that place where we love Jesus more than anything else? And I think the how we get there is really a why. 
I want to show you a short video clip. How many of you recognize the name Derek Redmond? 1992 Barcelona Olympics. He was favored to win the 400 meters. I want you to watch this as we think of the why should I love Jesus more than anyone else. Just a note for our online listeners. If you'd like to see this powerful video, just go to churchnextdooraz.com, then click on the sermons page and click on this sermon. We have the video embedded there. The video is called Try to Watch This Without Crying. You guys didn't do very good. <laughs> I watched that video, and I come away saying, how do you think Derek feels about his father? Is, is there anything Derek would not do for his father after his father did that for him? No. So I think, how do I get to the place where I love Jesus more than anyone else in my life? I remember all that he's done for me. And listen, we weren't just limping in an Olympic race. This is how Paul describes our condition without Christ in Ephesians 2. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. I mean, separated from God in which you used to live. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh. We were by nature deserving of wrath. A lot worse off than limping, right? Verse 4. But because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. How do I love Jesus more than anyone else in my life? I remember what he's done for me. Michael W. Smith put it this way in one of his songs. Crucified, laid behind a stone, you live to die, rejected and alone. Like a rose trampled on the ground, you took the fall and thought of me above all. The response to that is, thank you, Jesus. Now help me in the power of the Spirit to love you above all. Amen? He goes on in verse 27. Whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Many of you have been in church long enough to know when he says that, he's talking about, hey, we must be willing and prepared to suffer for Jesus when the moment comes. Whether it's verbal insults, physical suffering. As I thought about this, and I thought about the last three points, I thought, man, it would be great to share some living portraits of this. And that's what I want to do for each point throughout the rest of this message. The second point Jesus is getting at is, I'm willing to suffer for my Savior. And I want to tell you a story about... Just another quick note for our online listeners, names and locations have been omitted in this first story. He was sharing about a trip that he was going to be taking where they're going to help a local missionary there share the gospel. They proceeded east through the country and they would go to cafes where they would hang out with college students. And along the way, they had the chance to share the good news of Jesus. Listen to what he wrote. He said, we were able to eventually share the gospel of what Jesus did for us with them. 
and see these people interested and asking questions about what we were sharing. Seeds being placed. For me personally, he says, it was so amazing to see this occur and for these people to hear a different side of Jesus than they ever have. It also motivated me to be bolder about sharing Jesus back here at home. One of the most impactful things is my passion and desire to be bolder for God. It was very difficult and even at some points illegal to talk about or worship Jesus. And the language barrier made it that much harder. I struggled inside because I wanted to share with them so bad. Listen to this. Now being back home, there is no language barrier. It's legal to talk, worship, and even preach the gospel. I recognized that I was once worried about offending someone or feared what people might think of me. I don't care anymore if people hear me talking about God. I have a refreshed mindset of wanting people to hear the good news of what Jesus has done for all of us. Isn't that awesome to hear that from a young man? That's a young man that Aaron poured into when he was a teenager in his youth group. That's got to make you proud, huh? It's very cool. Willing to suffer for Jesus. He don't care no more what anybody thinks. And he's going to go out there and be bold. Will we? There's a vivid picture of this in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, one of C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. In that book, there's a character who's a rat named Reepicheep. There's all these humans on the journey, and Reepicheep, this little rat, is, is so filled with courage and, and bravery. He's like this wonderful picture throughout the book of, you know, God says he doesn't often call those who are noble in the eyes of the world. He, he uses those who are often looked down on, but it's because they have the faith of a mustard seed. He uses them. Reepicheep is a great picture of that. And in the book, he's on a journey with Prince Caspian and Edmund and Lucy and several other human characters. And the journey on this ship on the ocean is to find seven lords who have been lost. Seven leaders who have been lost. And they, on the journey, get to this island called the Dark Island. As they get closer to the island, they see the sky turning gray. And then they get to this section where it's like this wall of black. And the crew's starting to, to weigh out, should we go in there or not? Prince Caspian said, do we go into this? Not by my advice, said Captain Drinian. The captain's right, said several sailors. All at once, the clear voice of Reepicheep, this little rat, broke in upon the silence. And why not? Will someone explain to me why not? If I were addressing peasants or slaves, I might suppose that this suggestion came from cowardice. But I hope it will never be told in Narnia that a company of noble and royal persons in the flower of their age turned tail because they were afraid of the dark. Captain Drinian said, but what use would it be plowing through that darkness? Use, replied Reepicheep. Use, Captain. If by use you mean filling our bellies or our purses, I confess it will be no use at all. So far as I know, we did not set sail to look for things useful, but to seek honor and adventure. And here is as great an adventure as I ever heard of. honor, adventure. They went in. And when they went into the darkness, they found one of the seven lords swimming away from the, the island. They could only hear him shouting, mercy, 
Mercy, take me on board. In the name of all mercies, do not fade away and leave me in this horrible land. They saved him and brought him out. I think, wow. Sometimes to take the good news to people requires some insults. In some places it requires some physical suffering. Are we willing for the sake of the honor and the adventure and the Savior who loved us to go there with Jesus? Am I willing to suffer for Jesus? Friday night, I had the privilege of sitting in on the first meeting of the Wildland Firefighters Guardian Institute. Jerry and Deborah are part of a board looking to improve policies and procedures for wildland firefighters around the nation and around the world. We prayed at the beginning of that meeting, and I think about all the men that sign up for that field of work. When they go in, they're not ignorant of the risk. They're not ignorant of what they're getting into, but they go because they're courageous and they're passionate about saving lives. What a great example we ought to follow him when it comes to taking the gospel of Jesus, no matter what the cost. Verse 28, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. How many of you live in neighborhoods where everybody's closely watching what's going on in your yard? You know, if your weeds start to pop up, you hear about it from the guy across the street, or <laughs> you got a project that sits there too long. We, we got called in our neighborhood once because basketball hoops have to go in the garage at night, and we left it out one night. We got a call from the HOA and viewpoint. I don't know if one of my neighbors called or what. I mean, neighbors watch each other. And in this day, it was a huge deal. Often on a farm, you'd have to build a tower for various purposes. And there was a lot of honor at stake. If you left a tower on your property unfinished, you'd be insulted day and night at the town gates. That idiot. You see that eyesore over there on his property? Listen. What's he talking about? He's saying up front, before you start walking with Jesus, I want you to count the cost of what it's going to take and ask yourself the question, will I follow it through to the end? Alexander McLaren talks a lot about blueprints. How many of you guys have ever worked construction or architecture? Have you seen that? When they take that blueprint to the site, what's constantly going on? The construction workers are working. You know, they're dirty because they're out there working. They get their dirty thumbs on that blueprint, and they check it. They go work some more, and they, they check it again, and they work some more. And by the time the project's done, that, that blueprint's tattered up. Why? Because they continually keep going back to the blueprint. He goes on to say, nothing great in this life ever happens unless we are intentional, unless we follow the blueprint. He says, man... The way a blueprint is used on a construction site, that's how we ought to use our Bibles. Not just five minutes in the morning and then draw a hard line that separates that from the rest of the day and now I'm getting into real life. No, bring that into real life with me and say, Jesus, how do I build this tower for your glory in this situation with this coworker, with that neighbor? Often we don't get things done unless there's an intentionality and accountability to it. I think about our boys. Uh, they're, they're getting into their chore age now. 
And we talked about it for several months as we talked about what, is, what are your chores going to be. But you know what? It didn't really start until we put it down on paper on the fridge. Evan's going to put the silverware away when it comes out of the dishwasher. All right. And Evan's going to take the bathroom trash cans out and so on. And, and Jaden's going to pull weeds in the backyard. And he's going to take out the kitchen trash and clear the table. Once we put it on that paper and put it on the fridge and told him you need to cross it off and you'll get your allowance at the end of the, the week. <laughs> Guess what? Things started getting done. Why? Because we were intentional. We were clear. And they keep coming back to see, did I get it done? He's saying the same thing in our lives with Jesus. It doesn't just happen by accident. It happens as... We follow the Spirit, and we look at the Word and say, Jesus, what do I do in this situation? Now think about our towers, right? Tower is what we do for Jesus in the power of the Spirit. When we tell others about Jesus, when we exhibit fruits of the Spirit, the love, the joy, the peace. And as you think about your own tower, if you're like me, maybe sometimes you feel ashamed of the ways your tower falls short, and you wonder what other people think of your tower, and sometimes people will even criticize your tower. We're good at that. We're good at picking on other people's towers. I like what Franklin D. Roosevelt said. It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles, or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who's actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. I like that. We all are at different stages of our tower building, and sometimes it's going slower than we would like. I take his words as encouragement. Keep building in the power of the Spirit, because the only real tragedy is not the tower in progress. It's the tower that's abandoned. And what I think about when I think about what Jesus is saying here is, I'm in it for the long haul. I'm in it following you, Jesus, for the long haul. Someone I think about when I think of that is my friend Al McKenzie. He's a man I met at the Heights in Children's Ministry in the early 2000s when we started working there. Al just recently celebrated his 100th birthday. And Al, when they they asked him before he blew out his candle, what's your wish, Al? He said, my wish is that my life would be pleasing to my Lord. Several months after that, Al passed away, and I had the privilege of speaking with some other people at his memorial service. And I I shared a little bit about Al. Al knew how to make things stretch. I'll never forget one time, our family went to his house for lunch. And we were eating this bowl of liquid that had a vague hint of soup taste in it. And as we're eating, Al Al said, I put twice the water in to make it stretch. (laughs) But Al didn't only know how to make soup stretch. He he knew how to make his ministry stretch. Because let me tell you this, in children's ministry, Al was working with two and three-year-old kids until he was in his mid-90s. 
And I'll never forget one Sunday I showed up there, and he's in there with a broken arm on the floor, building block towers and singing, Jesus loves me to these little kids. <laughs> it was a children's pastor's dream, because every Saturday you're afraid of who's going to call and say, I can't be there. And sometimes the reasons are good, sometimes they're not. <laughs> it was a children's pastor's dream. And I, I just look at him and say, man, what was it that made his ministry stretch? And, and I know him well enough to know what it was. Paul says that Christ's love compels us. It's not this outward guilt or pressure. It's says Christ loved me so much. He made me right with God. I can't help but serve him. It's, it's the idea of Eric Little, the Christian runner. They asked him why he ran. And he said, God made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. I could hear Al saying, God made me with a love for children. And when I tell them about Jesus, I feel his pleasure. Justin brought up this week as we met that when we partner with God in the spiritual gifts that he's given us, oh man, there's a joy and, and a love for him as we partner with him. Now I look at Al and I just want to say, man, am I in it for the long haul? The thing about Al and his wife is they were never able to have children of their own. But I imagine now that he's up there with her, they're waiting one day. A lot of these kids are going to show up too from the Heights Church Children's Ministry and they're going to say, hey, I'm here because of you. He could say with Paul in 2 Timothy 4, 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. What about us? Are we in it for the long haul? One more point, verse 31. Suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down, that's the second time he said that, sit down up front and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000. If he's not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. And we got the first sit down and consider idea again here. Jesus wants us to consider up front what it, what it means to walk with him as a disciple. And I thought in some ways because of this, the kingdom of God is like a mullet. Okay? Anyone in here ever had a mullet that you would admit? A couple? All right, thank you guys. <laughs> what in the world am I saying? You know what they say about mullets, right? Business up front, party in the back, all right? Okay. <laughs> Wednesday, when we had our small group over our house, I put a sign on the front door because we were having a party out back and I put a picture of a guy with a mullet on there. Business in front, party out back. Carolyn said, that was not what I had in mind on my front door. <laughs> but I thought about that and I thought, the way Jesus comes at people and shares the costs up front, it's, it's a lot like that. He, he shares up front the cost of what it means to follow him and he says that the ultimate reward is yet to come. For now, let me tell you about the very real costs. In this example, he's, he's comparing us to a king with only 10,000 guys. And when you look out and you've got an army of 10,000, unless you've got a special secret, you see an army of 20,000 coming. What's the natural response? White flag, I surrender. I surrender. And I think a lot of what he's getting at here 
is I surrender all to Jesus. Sometimes we read these passages and we think that Jesus is saying, I've got to muster this all up in order to follow him. Eric shared a quote with me this week that that puts it clearly. No one has the resources in and of himself to be a disciple of Jesus Christ any more than he or she has the resources to earn God's favor. Our Lord is not trying to get these followers up enough commitment to become his disciples, but to reckon with reality that no one has the resources to follow him apart from his enablement. Listen to this. Discipleship, then, is not following Christ with our own sufficient means to do what he commands, but with utter dependence upon him to enable us to do his will. Both the willing and the doing come from him and not from us. But this finer, final point, I'd sum it up as I surrender all to Jesus. And for that, I think of a guy you've heard about named Jim. You heard a couple weeks ago how Katrina and I met Jim at Wendy's and he prayed to receive Christ. And it turned out Jim was in, plugged into another church. This is Pastor Kevin. Katrina went and met Kevin. He's a pastor in Prescott. And just this last Sunday, Jim, at 72 years old, got in front of his church and was baptized. <laughs> if you look at that picture, I, I don't know if he meant it, but that first one looks like he's got his thumbs up, like, yeah. And just coming up out of the water in that second picture. I think about Jim. Surrendering all to Jesus. And I think about all the excuses he could have had at 72. You can't teach an old dog new tricks. Time for me to settle down and take it easy. I've earned my stripes. There's no way I will admit that I've missed the gospel all these years. He grew up in church. He just grew up in a church where they didn't tell him you need to trust in Jesus. But he did. He surrendered all and trusted in Jesus. And we've shared a couple of times how he's sitting in his apartment listening to 35 chapters of the Word of God in one afternoon on an audio DVD because he can't get enough. His sister Janie says she can see the change in him at 72. I look at Jim and say, man, why, why would Jim surrender all to Jesus at this stage of his life after all these years? Why, why go to the the hassle of proclaiming it in front of a church. Because he found grace. He found the kingdom. He found Jesus. And that is the treasure in the field that the parable talks about. That's worth selling everything we have to go and buy. Jesus concludes his message here talking about salt. Verse 34, salt is good. Amen. But if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. Wow. It is thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Like us, the ancient Middle East, they use salt to season food. It helped slow down the decay of food. In small doses, it it fertilized land. And they could even use it as a catalyst to help dung burn when they wanted to get rid of a dung pile. Okay? 
The salt back then was a little different than ours. Today, salt cannot lose its, its purity. Salt is salt is salt, no matter what. You get salt, it's going to taste salty. Back then, it was different. It came from salt marshes, and it could be diluted. And you look at that and say, man, what's Jesus saying? He's saying, look, salt, it, does, it doesn't take a lot of salt to, to make something taste good. We tell our boys that all the time. Why? Because it's very distinct, right? As Christians, we ought to have that distinctness to our lives. As we connect to Jesus through his word and prayer, fellowshipping with other believers in our missional communities and our Sunday mornings, we ought to be distinct from the world. We ought to have a, a distinct taste. But what happens sometimes? We get deluded, don't we? We're half-hearted. We, we compromise. We do things Jesus has told us not to do. We think about thought patterns that disagree with God's word. We don't do things that he calls us to do because we're ashamed. And pretty soon, guess what? We're losing our flavor. I don't believe, because of what we know about the rest of the Bible, Jesus is saying we can lose our salvation. But what he's saying is, as a disciple, someone who follows me and is called to make a difference, if you get deluded with the world, as far as being useful to me in my kingdom... You're fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. You're not even fit to help that manure burn. It's just thrown out. These are strong words. He's saying, I want you to be useful. I want you to be a follower, useful to me as I advance my kingdom. Those strong words from Jesus make anybody uncomfortable? They make me a little uncomfortable. I don't want to be that diluted salt. Listen, Oswald Chambers, my utmost for his highest, any readers? He said there's always an if in connection with discipleship. The if implies that we need not be disciples unless we like. There is never any compulsion. Jesus does not coerce us. There's only one way of being a disciple, and that's by being devoted to Jesus. Now look at our four main ideas today and say, Jesus, help me. Help me to love you more than I love anyone else. Help me to be willing to suffer for you if you call me to that. Help me to be in it for the long haul. And help me to surrender all to you. Brennan Manning wrote a great book called The Ragamuffin Gospel. Good news for the bedraggled, beat up, and burnt out. Anybody ever feel that way? Yeah, I'd like to. I've read that book. It's an awesome book about grace and discipleship. He said this, For those who feel their lives are a grave disappointment to God, it requires enormous trust and reckless, raging confidence to accept that the love of Jesus Christ knows no shadow of change. His love does not change based on your performance or mine. Once we have that settled, he goes on. When Jesus said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy burdened, he says Jesus assumed we would grow weary, discouraged, and disheartened along the way. These words are a touching testimony to the genuine humanness of Jesus. He had no romantic notion of the cost of discipleship. He knew that following him was as unsentimental as duty, as demanding as love. To close, I just want to say this. You cannot understand Jesus' call to discipleship 
until you understand his amazing grace.